We are going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, and we'll be talking about um, all the things that are wrapped up in Christ's triumphal entry into the town of Jerusalem um, just a week before, just a few days before his crucifixion and a week before his resurrection. Um, We're reading it out of Matthew uh, because of the reference to um, Zechariah but it's accounted in all the Gospels. So if you would read with me from Matthew 21, follow along if you have your Bibles. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray this morning. Father, your word is good and true and eternal. And your son is exalted at your right hand as we speak. We pray that his name would be made known to us and to the world. In Jesus' good name, amen. So, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. This is... Just a few days before his crucifixion. And there is this event that happens that's very different than much of what has been happening. As the crucifixion gets nearer and nearer, you have more and more anger and bitterness coming from the leading men of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there is this growing divide between those who maybe think Jesus is something and someone and those who don't. And it culminates, obviously, in the crucifixion. And there are some who think that these same people are the ones who cry out, crucify him, just a few days later. I'm not persuaded that that's true. It might be true that people are that fickle and sinful. Um, But I tend to think that there probably was a growing faction of people who believed that Jesus was the prophet, the promised one. And they didn't understand, I think, fully who that was, Because the Spirit had not come. But I think the people here are probably faithful. There is a long history of God's people knowing his promises and believing his promises. And so you have a reference to what happened here uh, when Jesus says, you know, you go and you find, find this donkey and this colt and untie them and bring them to me so that this may be fulfilled. So... So this prophecy may be fulfilled. And this prophecy comes from the book of Zechariah, which is not a popular prophet um, in our day and age. And it's in chapter 9. I'm going to read just a portion of it. 
to you. So this is uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim as its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling of stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewel of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall, be made the young men, grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. That there's a lot going on in this prophecy from Zechariah. There is the pro- prophecy about the coal and the donkey, the foal of a donkey. Um, and there's a prophecy about coming peace and the kingdom of God and the triumph of, of God's people over their enemies. And then in the end, he will save them as a flock. And they will be like a crowned jewel shining over the land. This is all coming true and began to come to pass in the days of Jesus that there was a conquering that began 2,000 years ago. And not a physical conquering. Obviously, the people of Rome continued on for many hundreds of years afterwards. Jesus did not come his first time to become a king on the earth, but to become the declared king of all things. But when he comes again, he will absolutely come with power and might and authority. But this first time, he came in a very different way, an unexpected way. And he draws special attention to this prophecy from Zechariah. When Jesus was here and he was fulfilling all things, all the time, everything he did, every moment of his life, was a fulfillment of the things that had been written. Everything. He came to fulfill the entirety of the law. And that meant everything he did was perfect and utterly planned, perfected in heaven before his descension to this earth. But there are things about his life that seemingly look as though he had no control over them, even though we know he does. Things like where the stakes were placed in his wrists and where the crown was smashed onto his head. He didn't have any physical means to make that happen. He didn't take the, the soldier's hand and smash the crown down on his head. But all things were happening in accordance to prophecy. Those were prophecies, his beard being plucked out, him being spit upon. Those were prophecies from Isaiah that were fulfilled, seemingly outside his control. But then there are other prophecies, like this one, where he calls special attention to them and says, I am doing the thing that was prophesied, just so you know. I'm doing this thing right now. And here's one of them. 
And he doesn't just come into Jerusalem, see a donkey, and say, Oh, there was that prophecy about a donkey, and I'm supposed to come in on a donkey. I should take this donkey. No, he, he absolutely declares his godness in the moment by saying, You two, go ahead to this place, and you will find them, and you will bring them to me so that I can fulfill this. He is very much declaring, I'm in charge here. This whole thing that's about to go down, I'm in charge. It was prophesied, I am announcing the fact that I'm doing it right now. This is my entrance to the prophecy of the peace of the nations. This is my announcement that the king of glory is coming into Jerusalem. Go get my donkey. And it's such a weird thing. We don't think of kings as coming in on lowly animals. We think of kings as coming with all the pomp and circumstance that attains their office. If the Queen of England showed up here this morning, there would be lots of stuff happening. We would have known about it beforehand. We would prepare the royal feast, whatever that is, for Jasper, Indiana. Whether we'd cater it from the Schnitzelbank, I don't know. But we would make a deal. And Jesus comes on a donkey into his town, to his flock, to his people. To just make us go, what is happening here? What is happening? Who is this king? He is quite different than we thought he would be. And then he ends up doing the unthinkable just a few days later, and that is dying on a cross. But he does come with some sort of pomp and circumstance. The people, and this is why I think they're actually faithful people and they're not the people who cried out, crucify him a few days later, is these people know the scriptures. Hosanna is a smushing together, basically, of some Hebrew words from Psalm 118, which I read at the beginning. It's a smushing together of these Hebrew words that mean save us. And so they're crying out, Hosanna, which is Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. And in the very next verse, they're also saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were completely aware that this man was coming in the name of the Lord. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were knowing that this thing was happening. And then if you... You may not remember because obviously I just read it to you. But the very next verse, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That the very next thing that happens in the psalm is the binding of the sacrifice for the altar. These people, though they may not have understand fully, were quoting a passage of scripture that had, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festal sacrifice. And they were doing it to the Lord of glory as he came in on a donkey. These were people who understood that Jesus was the momentous one. The one who was bringing peace. The salvation of his people. And they didn't still, I don't think, quite put together that the one who came in the name of the Lord was the one who was about to be bound as the festal sacrifice. They didn't quite put it together yet. But I think they understood that Jesus was their Savior. And you see it kind of building with those who had faith 
in, in the days of Jesus that even the apostles themselves were confused about what was happening and why Jesus was doing certain things and not doing other things and wouldn't it be better if we did this and I don't think you should do that. But they were being faithful. They were trying to understand all these prophecies that were made. And Jesus is saying, here is the one I want you to pay attention to. I'm coming on a donkey. And it's just, it's just so weird. It's just such a strange one to pick. You, if we were the ones picking, if we were in Jesus' shoes, we would not pick this one. We would pick something much more spectacular. We would pick something much more glorious. We would pick, pick one full of much more pomp and much more circumstance. We would maybe reference David. We would pick something that makes people think, the king! And he's like, here's how I'm going to notify everybody that the king is in town. Zechariah 9, donkey. Coming on the donkey. And it's just a, it's a, it's almost as though he's putting these cap ends on his life on the earth. He came in the gentlest, lowliest way. This virgin girl who was faithful, this humble man who was faithful, they go back to Bethlehem, they can't find a room, he's born in a stable. Humble. Nobody really even knows what happened. And yet there's this one, the mother of John the Baptist, who recognizes him, who knows, even in the womb, like, hey, my son, John the Baptist, is reacting to the one who's in your womb. And then Mary says, you know, the Lord, the Lord is in my belly. And here's this humble beginning that none of us would have chose for the Lord of glory. We would choose this magnificent, overpowering display of might And in the end, it's again just this humble donkey coming into town to die. And again, we would choose the exact opposite. Because what we think, what we think is best, is that if God would have just displayed Christ in his total glory, if he would have just appeared in splendor and might, then everyone would have just believed. That's what we think. We might not say it like that, but we do think that. We think if God would just light up the sky one night in Jasper, Indiana, and open the heavens, then everyone in Jasper would believe. And the reality is, that's not true. It's just not true. That this is the way that God is patient with his people. That coming in humility, coming on a donkey, coming unexpectedly is the way God shows his patience over these thousands of years. If God displayed his wrath and his might and his majesty and his gloriousness and his love all at once to the entirety of the people of the world, there would still not be full salvation to all people. Even though we think there would be. We think all the time if God would just do this or do that, then people would believe. As though we know better than God how he should act. And here we see it just on total display. Because 
if you remember, again, back to Psalm 118, which has the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you catch another one that happened, another prophecy that was going on in Psalm 118? It's this one. Uh, Oh, now I've lost the... Oh, goodness. Here we go. Sorry. I had verse 12, and it's, that's the one about the bees, and that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. But the same passage that has, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, also contains this prophecy that this is the one that the builders, the cornerstone that the builder, that people reject. And it's the chief cornerstone. And that is coming, right? So at the end of chapter 21, Jesus tells this parable of the tenants and how they came and they killed the son. So he says he finally sent the son and then the tenants the farmers of the vineyard killed the son. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And he was talking about the rejection of the Jews towards him. That what we don't understand is that oftentimes what God is doing in his lowliness when Jesus came was showing that men would reject God no matter how he came. That it doesn't matter if he came on a donkey or if he came in splendor and power. That the reality is people reject the cornerstone, Christ. And they always find a way to have a problem with him. Always. He could come meek and mild. He could come triumphant and glorious. And there will be people who hate him. That is the way. That is what happens. And usually, the way that it happens in Scripture is the lowlier he becomes, the more men hate him. So the more we think we should present Jesus in pomp and glory people will mostly ignore the pomp and glory. But if we present Jesus as the humble one who died, which is the most humiliating thing that can happen, right? To be wrongly convicted and murdered by the judiciary, that's humiliating. It's humiliating for the judiciary, but it's horrible for the one who died. You think they got no justice, nothing good happened. This is the story, though, of Christ, is the total, complete opposite of what we think should have happened. And the more we declare this truth, the fact that Jesus came lowly and humble on a donkey, without pomp and circumstance, there will be two factions. There will be those who cry out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there will be those who conspire to put him to death. And this is actually the main mistake that we make in our culture. So in our culture, the way we interact with people outside the church, this is how this manifests. We in our heads know, which is true, that God in Christ Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of glory. He owns the earth and all that is on it. And so we ought to obey him. And so what we do is we begin to have these power trips that we think are the best display of that. We ought to do this, that, and the other. We ought to sue this company for that. We ought to sue that company for this. We ought to, you know. We end up putting our hope in laws and in commands of the land. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, our legislature here in Indiana, the legislature passed the uh, No Trans Athletes in High School Bill. I forget what it was, HB 1407 or something like that. And our governor, Eric Holcomb, vetoed it. This happened actually in several states across the country in the last few weeks. Um, Now, what most of us want to do is storm the governor's mansion and shake our fists at Eric Holcomb and say, by you not signing this, our kids will be corrupted because you wouldn't do this. And so we place all the supposed authority that we think Jesus has at the feet of Eric Holcomb, as though this guy, Eric Holcomb, our governor, is in charge ultimately. That if he does this or doesn't do that, that we are saved or lost. And we do this all the time, right? So right now, uh, the governor of Florida is kind of the darling of the Republican world, and we're hoping that he runs for president and gets elected which is great. I hope that it happens. I think he's a good man. I think he's doing good things. But he is not the salvation of the church or of our children. It doesn't matter if President Biden gets reelected or Governor DeSantis gets elected. Or President Biden, did I say governor? President Biden gets reelected or Governor DeSantis gets elected. Or if Trump gets reelected. Or if Hillary Clinton gets elected. Because the reality is... We do not spread the gospel through military or political triumph. It never has been spread through military and political triumph. There is Christianese that's been spread through political and military triumph, but not Christianity, not belief in Jesus, not actual salvation. Now, this is a two-edged sword because in a land that is free, as we still are, The gospel has an opportunity to be declared in a way that communist China, it does not. But here's the thing. Faith in China is growing. Faith in the United States has been declining for decades. It is not a political thing, this gospel of Jesus Christ. It is above politics. It's above the things that we think would make the biggest difference. We think if this happened or that happened, then the gospel, then we could... And Jesus shows us, listen, I came on a donkey. And then they rejected me and murdered me. But I was the sacrifice. And it was supposed to happen this way. 
But we would be just like Peter, right? Peter on the way, he's like, you will not die. This is three and a half years in. Peter has been with Jesus. Jesus has repeatedly said, I'm going to go die in Jerusalem, just so you know. That's going to happen at the end. And Peter, at the very end, is like, don't do that. Don't go. And what does Jesus respond to him? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of the Lord in mind. We want the thing all the time. We want the politic. We want the law. We want the the mechanism that will get people to just believe. And Jesus constantly, constantly shows us You're looking at the wrong things. You're thinking about the wrong things. I came on a donkey purposefully to show you that you don't get it. So what is then the thing that we should learn from this? If we want people to be saved, and I think we do, if we want the town of Jasper to see the gospel, and I think we do, if we want our state to know the gospel, And I think we do. If we want the country and the world to hear the gospel and believe it and be saved. Our overarching emphasis is not set upon the declaration that we have the power to declare the declaration. right? So the United States... Christians basically are are claim to fame as saying we're the free land where we can proclaim the gospel. That's like what we think is the best thing about America. The best thing about America is that God is the ruler of all lands, and America's one of them. That's the best thing. The gospel, though, is this humility, this humbleness to say to someone, Jesus could have taken everybody out in 30 A.D., and he didn't. He could have brought another flood, but he didn't. He could have destroyed the earth in some other way, but he didn't. Instead, he has been patient with us, and he has shown us this cornerstone, this humiliation of the Son of God on the earth that is to be our prominent declaration. Yes, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is high and exalted, and he is ruling and reigning until the day he returns. But the declaration of how to enter into that kingdom is not just that. It's Jesus came to save us. And that sounds so simple. And it sounds so easy. And it sounds like, why would anyone be mad about that? But people lose their minds when you tell them that Jesus came to save them. They murder you when you say those sorts of things. Now, in the United States, it has not come to those things. But if you ever pick up like a magazine like Voice of the Martyrs or something like that, It's appalling what the world does to those who declare the simple, humble message that Jesus came to save. We think if they would have just gotten louder about it and maybe had some political control in Afghanistan or if 
they would have really just raised their voices up and Iran or, you know, if they would just really get after things in central India, that they would not have the persecution because Jesus is king. But the reality is people have always hated the king. They will always hate the king. Jesus came and the people who were faithful, though, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We need to be willing to not tell people about the victorious Christian life. That if you believe in Jesus, you will get your finances straight and you'll be able to buy a nice home and your kids will be well educated and um, you'll have a nicer car. Which is basically the message that we tell people. If you come to church and you believe in Jesus, things will go better for you. You'll not have any of the problems you had before. It's just not true. There are things that happen in the life of a Christian that might make some of those things true, but there are things about people's lives that might never get fixed in this life. So don't sell Jesus in that way. Instead, sell him in this way. And I say sell. Don't sell him. Tell them of Jesus in this way. Jesus came on a donkey. On a donkey. And they'll go, what does that even mean? Why does that matter? You wouldn't follow a man on a donkey. That's what you need to tell them. And they'll go, yeah, I would. I'm humble. I'm, I'm not, not like those proud people. And we just go, no. You wouldn't follow a king on his horse, and you wouldn't follow a man on his donkey. This is the one who came. We need to confront people with the reality of the humbleness of Jesus. And it's difficult to put into words what that means, but I'm going to end with some scripture to try and help us with that. This is just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. This is a parable that Jesus spoke. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And the son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. When we think about what evangelism is, 
For the last 60 to 70 years in the United States, much of evangelism has focused on collegiate evangelism. So Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators, and tons of other, tons of other ministries. Why do you think they did that? Well, in case you are not aware, college-educated people tend to make more money than non-college-educated people. If you were to pick a street in this town, and if you were bold enough to do it, and decide this is the street that I'm going to work on going door-to-door and trying to save, would you pick Vine Street or 15th over behind the hospital? I was joking with the Nolans about how I like to tell people that we've got a couple that lives over off of 15th Street behind the hospital, but they live like in the neighborhood, like the old neighborhood, not the great big houses on 15th Street. Anyway, we would pick the big houses. We would. We would go knock on those doors a hundred times if we had the boldness before we go knock on all the apartments on Vine Street. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because we would rather have someone wealthy and with status in our church pew who isn't a problem to be fixed than a mess from Vine Street. We would. What do you think? A man has two sons. One of them says, I'm not going to work. And the other says, I'll go to work. Which one has been faithful? The ministry of the gospel, we often withhold from people we don't think deserve it or will believe it or have faith. And the reason we don't think they will believe it or deserve it or will have faith is because they're full of sin. Real evident sin. Ugly sin problematic sin. But the reason we are happy to tell the guy on 15th Street, why don't you come to church some Sunday? Is because we think he's not going to bring anything with him that's going to be hard and disastrous and debilitating. Because we, we think the sign that somebody is ready to believe is that they have a work ethic and live in a nice house. And Jesus came on a donkey. Do we get it? We have a problem thinking that the gospel is for those who kind of have it together. The gospel is for nobody who has it together. Because they don't think they have any need of a physician. You want the sick and the dying to know the gospel. Because they know they're sick and dying. I don't know what all that means for us as a church. I do know that in America, at large, what it means for the church is we have gotten evangelism very much backwards in the last 50 or 60 years. We go to where people we think will be successful will hear the gospel. In fact, I have friends who are in these ministries. The stated purpose of some of them, the stated purpose, 
is that these are the people who will affect the world, and so we have to save them. That's the stated purpose. And they are the master's level students at big colleges. We save them, we save the world. As though God was ever helped by the status of an individual. He's not. He's not helped by the status of any individual. Because he came on a donkey. He came on a donkey. He needed no status. He does not need our status. He does not need 15th Street status. He is the Lord of glory. And he will be rejected by all kinds of people. But to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, they will cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes. And they will rejoice that somebody is standing beside them saying the same thing. Let's be, let's be willing to be humble about who we take the gospel to, who we think needs it, who we would welcome into our church and who we would not. And let's confess our sins and let's trust God. Let's trust God with evangelism. And trust God that he knows how best to affect and arrest the hearts of men. Let's pray this morning and then we'll sing together, number 337. Father, we are very grateful for your son, Jesus. We are grateful that he came and that he died, and we are very grateful that he called our attention to the fact that he did not come into Jerusalem that week with pomp and circumstance, but on the, on the back of a donkey, to people lying palm branches down and crying, Hosanna. Father, let us be those people who cry, Hosanna. Let us take the gospel to all the earth without any sort of hope that people who have made it or who have political influence are the best hope of the gospel succeeding, but that you are the best hope of the gospel succeeding and that your voice is the one that they need to hear. We pray, Father, that you would help us in that work, that your voice would go out to the ends of the earth and that the cornerstone whom the Jews have rejected would be the light of the world and that many, many millions would come into the kingdom through his work and his his death and his resurrection. We pray that he would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.